Welcome to the Via Emmaus podcast. This is uh, David Schrock at Occoquan Bible Church, one of the pastors there. And I'm here today with Sam Amadi, senior editor at Nine Marks, good friend of mine. And as we are going through our reading plan this month, we're getting to Joseph. And I've come to ask Sam some questions about that. So, Sam, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. Very good. Sam, uh, you actually grew up in Northern Virginia, or I should say you were born in Fairfax and then moved out to Utah, right? Tell us a little bit about yourself. That's true. So I was born in Fairfax, but I don't remember any of it because okay. I was only there for about nine months. All right. Uh, my dad worked uh, as a civilian engineer for the Air Force. So when I was nine months old, we moved to Layton, Utah. All right. Where is Layton, Utah? So Layton, Utah is about... 20 to 30 miles north of Salt Lake City. Okay, so you moved out there, and uh, there are quite a few Mormons in, in Utah. Is your family uh, Mormon background? What, what's your, your family's background? Uh, my family's not Mormon, so my dad is from Iran. Okay. My mom's from Idaho. All right. They got married, and somehow we ended up being Reformed Baptists in Utah. So they became Christians just about a year before I was born while they were living in Texarkana. All right. And then when we moved to Utah, uh, they were already believers. Uh, I became a believer in Utah. Uh, we went to a small but good local church there that had faithful expository preaching, good Bible teaching. Awesome. Brother, I remember you telling me your testimony a number of years ago. Uh, Sam and I served together as pastors of a church in Indiana, and I just wanted to just share that because I just remember how you were a musician uh, that just had uh, kind of a conversion experience after that, and uh, just tell us how you came to faith in Christ. Yeah, so I think my uh, actual moment of conversion was pretty early in life. Uh, probably when I was around six or seven, um, just through the faithful teaching of my parents and the local church uh, where they were members at. Um, I think the Lord used their teaching uh, ultimately to bring me to a knowledge of my own sinfulness, that my need for Jesus to save me of my sins. Though, uh, in junior high and high school, well, I do believe I was a believer at that time, uh, I was certainly in need of more dis- discipling. And it was around that time where I discovered uh, uh, that I loved playing the saxophone, I loved jazz music, and so that became a big part of my life. It certainly became what I think uh, was an idol in my life. And uh, so I had, uh, especially through high school, two emerging uh, and almost competing interests. One uh, was my emerging interest in scripture and uh, ministry, and then another emerging, which was largely rooted in uh, just a lot of the evangelistic conversations mm-hmm. that I was be, uh, uh, able to have with Mormons Okay, um, in my high school. I was the only evangelical in my high school wow. and uh, just had a lot of uh, opportunity to talk to Mormons, to be questioned why I believe the things I believe, and that drove me to the Bible. Hmm. And so that started to uh, create in me uh, a renewed interest and passion for the Bible, but also at the same time was this love of playing the saxophone, playing jazz music. Um, I thought that's what I wanted to do with my career. So I went to college on a full-ride music scholarship, Hmm. um, was uh, intending on being a jazz saxophone performance major, trying to make a career out of that, was kind of making a career out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was getting free schooling. I was playing around town. I was making money. At the end of that year, um, I even had an opportunity for more kind of consistent full-time work as a musician. But in that first year of college, I also realized that 
well, you can be a musician to the glory of God. I was, in some sense, living my dream. Mm-hmm. I had achieved what I wanted to. Uh, I was full-ride music scholarship. I was playing professionally. But I just, it left me empty. Huh. You know, it was kind of, it was my, it was my eschatological vision, That's you know, right. uh, being a professional musician. <laughs> yep. But when it arrived, it wasn't that great. Wasn't but enough. I realized what I loved mm-hmm. was studying the Bible and witnessing to my friends and teaching scripture to anyone who'd be willing to listen to me. Amen. So that's what the Lord used to really reroute uh, my, my my life and um, kind of take me from uh, those interests into more ministry interests. Amen. And that's probably what led you to Southern Seminary, uh, to go and study the Bible there where I got to meet you and uh, then ask you to come and teach the youth uh, right. at the church we were at in Indiana together. Right. That's correct. And we've been doing that ever since. Yep. And you are now uh, an editor at Nine Marks. Uh, what is Nine Marks? For those who may not know that, tell us a little bit about that ministry. Yeah, so Nine Marks is an organization that's dedicated to building resources and relationships that help create healthy local churches. So we think the Bible actually has a blueprint for what a local church should be, Amen. and that includes things like expository preaching, membership, discipline, biblical leadership, evangelism, missions, a biblical understanding of conversion. Mm-hmm. And so we want to create resources and relationships that help promote those biblical principles in local churches in America and around the world. Praise God. Well, we're actually in the Nine Mark studio today which looks something like a children's room today, uh, but using some of their equipment. So we are thankful for them sponsoring us today for this conversation and uh, came to talk to Sam a little bit about uh, the person of Joseph in the book of Genesis. So as I mentioned, we are reading through a Bible plan that takes us to Genesis right now. We just started reading about Joseph. And Joseph is a, a topic that you have studied and searched into for many years, did your dissertation on that. And I just want to ask you a few questions about that. To start with, for Joseph, it's the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. So why is that? Why does Joseph get so much airtime, if you will, in the book of Genesis? Yeah, that is the question that drove me to write the dissertation. Okay. So I was reading, uh, I guess like your listeners are doing, mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading Genesis devotionally, Yep. and I can't help it when I'm reading a passage of scripture, I'm always thinking, how would I preach this? Oh, yeah. And so when I... Uh, got to the Joseph story, I just had no idea. Hmm. I had no idea how I would preach it. And I was baffled by the fact that Moses spends so much time talking about Joseph. Yeah. And you, if you think about the titanic kind of redemptive historical figures that are in Genesis, you have Adam and Noah and Melchizedek and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Joseph gets more words and chapters and paragraphs than any of those figures. And on top of that, his story is so different from the previous stories. You know, in previous stories in Genesis, you have kind of short stories that are, you know, strung together. Whereas the Joseph story is one big, long story over over 14 chapters. So uh, that's that's the question that uh, really incited me to investigate what's going on here with the Joseph story, especially when... Uh, you have so little commentary on the Joseph story in the rest of the Bible. Right? Hmm. So the rest of Scripture hmm. talks about Melchizedek right. more than it talks about Joseph. Interesting. I mean, that's just a, an amazing fact of yeah. the Bible. Yeah. So if 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 the if you know Psalm one ten and the New Testament can develop such rich biblical theology out of Melchizedek, yeah, I right. thought, well, surely there's something going on here with Joseph. So I think the reason Moses spends so much time on the Joseph story is. Uh, Basically to show, if you're going to associate Joseph with uh, 
one word. Mm-hmm. It should be the word resolution hmm. okay. or fulfillment. Okay. And so I think what the, one of the reasons Moses spent so much time on the Joseph story is to resolve hmm. the story of Genesis or to put it another way, to show a fulfillment of the promises that he's given earlier in Genesis. Hmm, that's helpful. Well, brother, I look forward to hearing more about that. That's why I'm here to talk to you about that today. I've never thought about it quite like that, so look forward to, to thinking about that more. At our church, we talk a lot about just the structure of a passage, and uh, sometimes David Helm has talked about that as the bone and marrow mm-hmm. of, a, of a passage. And so these 14 chapters, uh, is there a structure that we find in those chapters? I am convinced there is. Okay. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so I think I think when you take each chapter, mm-hmm. you can very clearly discern a structure in each chapter. Okay. So 37 has a structure, 38 has a structure. Um, and I think the Joseph story is one of the most highly stylized and structurally beautiful mm. uh, pieces of, of literature that we have in the Old Testament. Yep. Um, there's just so many amazing things that are going on in that story. Uh is is there a structure to the whole thing? Well, there've been a number of uh, uh, things that have been submitted mm-hmm. for a possible structure, sure. and I think many of them are credible. Uh, but I'm not. Uh, I'm yet. I, I have yet to find kind of the smoking gun structure. Right. I, I certainly think there's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly think that uh, we are meant to see. Uh, Genesis 45 as the heart of the story, okay. the center of the story, yep. the the moment where Joseph pulls back the curtain, reveals himself to his brothers, mm-hmm. reconciles with them, offers them forgiveness, gives a theological interpretation of the events that have happened to okay. him. You know, it wasn't you who sent me here, it was the Lord who sent uh, me there. That's yeah. the beating heart of the story. I certainly okay. think that's the that's the structural heart as well. It's all leading into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest is flowing out of it. Um, so I think there's a structure. I'm not quite sure what the structure is yet. That's a good answer. That's helpful. Brother, as we read through the Joseph story, what are a couple of things that we might be looking for? So you mentioned just the heartbeat there in chapter 45, that it is the Lord who is behind these things. I think about Psalm 105 and 106 that talk about how the Lord sent Joseph there. And so we see God's providence there. Maybe Joseph doesn't know those things at the time. The Lord tested him. The Word of God tested him there. What might be just a couple of things that would encourage people as they're reading through these things? What are things you point out? Yeah, I think one of the most important things about the Joseph story is... Uh, you have this really critical theological theme mm-hmm. uh, running through all of it, namely God's providence. Yeah. But don't miss what the providence is doing. Hmm. The providence has a specific function in that story. God's providence fulfills his promises. Amen. That's what uh, the the theme of providence is doing in the Joseph story. So as, you, as you're tracing that theme out, we have to be very sensitive to what Moses is doing in the story in showing how, if we're going to summarize the Joseph story, what's happening is God is basically stacking the odds against himself. Hmm. How, how could he possibly fulfill the promises to Abraham? How could he possibly fulfill the promise of land and seed and blessing and kingship when all of these odds have been stacked against yeah. you know, the, the, the family of promise? They're, they're in Egypt. Uh, they're, they're suffering a famine. There's, uh, there's conflict between the seed. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the family just seems to be splitting apart and fracturing. How can God possibly overcome all these obstacles? Mm. Well, that's what the providence of God is about mm. in, that, in that passage. Joseph pulls back the curtain and shows, you know, 
these obstacles are nothing for God when we understand who he truly is. So you're saying that the Joseph story is actually more about God than it is Joseph, or at least that the, 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 the emphasis should ultimately res, resolve itself in what God has been doing. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what Moses does in the Joseph story is really beautiful in, in that he, he, in the initial chapters of the Joseph story, puts us in Joseph's place, so to speak. And what I mean hmm. by that is the initial chapters of the Joseph story read a lot like Esther. Okay. God is very infrequently mentioned hmm. in Genesis 37 to 44. Okay. There's a couple of mentions of of uh, what the Lord is doing in Genesis 38 and 39. Uh, but a lot of that is really just to contrast Judah and Joseph, hmm. right? The Lord is displeased with, you know, the children of Judah, but the Lord is pleased and he is with Joseph hmm. in 39. So there's a little bit of commentary about what the Lord is doing, but he basically disappears from the story. Hmm. I mean, when you compare how many times the words Yahweh and Elohim uh, are used in Genesis 1 to 36, and then compare that with how often he's referred to in Genesis 37 to 44, 45. God is referred to maybe, I think, four and a half times per chapter wow. in the first part of Genesis. Okay. But once you hit the Joseph story, he's referred to on average less than once per chapter. Mm. So he okay. disappears. Well, what's Moses doing with that? I think what he's doing is he's putting us in Joseph's place. Mm. He's, he's, in some sense, drawing a curtain yep. in front of heaven so that we can't see what God is doing. Because we, like Joseph are supposed to come to the end of this story and look beyond that curtain and That's trust helpful. in God's providence and trust in his sovereignty yeah. so that when Joseph pulls back that curtain in Genesis 45, you're right there with him. Uh, and you see, yes, God is sovereign and he is working his promises out and he is fulfilling them. But we have to grasp that by faith. Amen. Uh, and I think that's, what, that's what's happening there in those early chapters. We're pulling back that curtain so that we can learn to, to w be with Joseph in suffering and learn to trust God's promises by faith, even when we can't see what's going on in heaven. Yeah, that's really helpful. Just to even see the way that the absence of language is intentional mm -hmm. and how that's creating a dramatic climax for what he's going to do. So you're really reading the book of Genesis far different than Ephesians or 1 Peter, right? For someone who's more trained to just study the letters of Paul or the New Testament, what's different about reading narrative and applying that? Uh, to the rest of the Bible or to our own lives? Yeah, I think when we're reading the epistles, uh, there's, there's more, uh, there's less work that we have to do, so to speak, in order to understand what's, what's going on mm, in there, yeah. right? It's, it's didactic, uh, it's propositional, mm -hmm. um, we just have to unpack the argument. We have to unwind these pretty tightly wound arguments that yep. the apostles are making in those epistles. Narrative, however, is a little bit different uh, because it requires us to supply the right biblical theological categories mm. for how we interpret everything that's going on in front of us. And we don't, we don't want to have extra biblical categories that we're putting on top of the text, right? We're not just kind of creating our own theological categories out of our own imagination. What we're wanting to do is find the Bible's own internal theological categories, the promises of Abraham, mm -hmm. the doctrine of creation, the character of God, mm. and then we want to read the narrative through those, uh, you know, kind of big picture categories that all of Scripture give, gives us. So, for instance, I think what we need to do when we're reading uh, the uh, uh, narratives of the Old Testament is we need to constantly ask the question, how does this relate to the covenants, hmm. right? God's 
program for all of creation is unfolded along the covenants. And the covenants describe how God relates to humanity. It describes how humanity is supposed to relate to God. Those covenants give us a framework for understanding the the events that are unfolding. So when we're reading something in the Bible and we ask, well, was this a good thing or was this a bad thing? Hmm. Well, I don't know. You know, the narrator's not telling us if it was good or bad. Well, the covenants tell us if it was good or bad. The covenants tell us, oh, this this thing's going to bring blessing. This thing pleases God or this thing's not going to bring blessing. God's going to be opposed to this. Right. So you mentioned earlier that the one word that you'd use for Joseph is resolution or fulfillment from those promises that came earlier in Genesis. And you're saying that in the covenant promises, like you find in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, that's where you'd find those promises that then the question becomes, how will they be fulfilled? And they are then shown to be fulfilled in what is done in Joseph's life. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I think I think Joseph is providing what I would call an anticipatory fulfillment of okay. the Abrahamic promises. So mm. let me explain what I mean by yeah. that. Big words. It is a genuine fulfillment of the promises. Uh-huh. And let me give you an illustration of that. Okay. Let's take the seed promise that was given to Abraham. Yeah. But let's let's take it all the way back to Adam. Adam is commanded, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Noah, Genesis 9-1, Genesis 9-7, commanded, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that command is transformed into a promise when we get to Abraham. Hmm. Abraham, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. That's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. That language is used over and over again, Genesis 35. Mm -hmm. So all through Genesis, we have this expectation that the people of God Hmm. are going to be fruitful and multiply. It's a command, it's a promise, but we don't see it happen until Genesis 47, 27. Hmm. Joseph settles the people of Israel in the land of Goshen, Hmm. and there they are fruitful and they multiply. For the very first time in the Genesis story, Hmm. it's in the indicative. It happens. It's not just a command or a promise. It actually happens. Hmm. So it's a genuine, real fulfillment. At the same time... uh, it's 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 not the eschaton, yeah, right? It's yeah. it's not the coming of the Messiah. We still expect something more. We mm-hmm. expect these things to be fulfilled in an even greater way. Mm-hmm. So it's an anticipatory fulfillment. Mm-hmm. It's a fulfillment that anticipates something greater. Oh, now, I I give an illustration to help help explain how this works. Because we we encounter these type type of anticipatory resolutions all the time. So I think one one illustration that that seems to work for people is if in 1977 you go see the original Star Wars movie. You watch the movie and at the end of the movie, you know, they Luke Skywalker blows up the Death Star and there's a big celebration, everybody gets a medal. But you walk out of the theater, you walk out of the theater totally satisfied. That movie had a resolution, mm-hmm. had a beginning, a middle and an end. They resolved, you know, the conflict and the plot and the themes. But you also expect there to be a sequel mm-hmm. because the Empire's still out there. Darth Vader still got away. There's there is yet more to come. That's what's going on in the Joseph mm. story. It's a genuine fulfillment, resolution of of what's going on in Genesis, but it resolves those themes in a way that causes you to expect something else to come. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I'm thinking about Star Wars. When I went and saw Star Wars seven, people are everybody disappointed because well, it's just like number four, right? It's like, yeah, but it's bigger and better. It's like that's typology. 
There you right? go. I mean, yeah. so it is replaying the patterns, but at a larger scale. Right. So earlier you said that the Joseph story doesn't get picked up a lot later on in the Old Testament or the New. But how does it play into the story of the Bible? Are there, is there a way that Joseph is a type of coming Christ? How, how do you read that in the, in the line of the whole Bible? Yeah, so I think what we need to do is, is go back and meditate a little bit more on how Joseph resolves the storyline mm-hmm. of Genesis, because I think that's critical. What you'll often find in a lot of uh, uh, evangelical commentaries on Joseph, and I think this is good, this is part of the calculus, this is part of the equation, is they will say, Joseph is a type of Christ because, look, you know, uh, he, he was sold into slavery by, by Judah, uh, Christ was betrayed by Judas, um, uh, uh, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, Jesus was rejected by his brothers. Those correspondences are important. Those historical correspondences are part of topology, mm-hmm. but they're not the whole picture. Okay. It's part of the calculus, but it's not, it's not the whole equation. You have to look for historical correspondences, but what you're also looking for is what you might call covenantal or theological correspondences. Mm. Not just the events themselves correspond, right. but what's the meaning of these events? In the historical context. In the historical context. Right. And that's where it's important to see the events of Joseph as resolution and fulfillment. So let's, let's just walk, a few, uh, walk through a few other points. Let's think about um, blessing, mm-hmm. right? So we've already seen seed. Uh, let's think about blessing. Well, all through the Joseph story, what do we find? Joseph goes into Egypt, and he is a blessing to the nations. Mm. It, yeah. it, in, in Genesis 39.3, it says that Yahweh blesses Potiphar on account of Joseph. I mean, that's mm. very mm. clearly a yeah. direct allusion back to the promises of Genesis 12. Or, you know, when we see uh, in Genesis 46, 47, who is 47, where uh, Jacob comes and stands before Pharaoh. And why is he standing before Pharaoh? Again, because it's the ministry of Joseph. Joseph is, is integral in, in, in this entire story. Well, well, what's happening here? You have Jacob, who's the aged leader of, you know, a, 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 a lowly tribe of 70 Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Standing in front of the great world superpower, Pharaoh, hmm. but Jacob blesses Pharaoh. It's, wild. it's the exact opposite of what you would expect. Yeah. Why? Because Joseph, the Joseph story is a story of fulfillment. Through Joseph, God is bringing blessing hmm. to the nations. Or let's, let's just kind of move away from the Abrahamic promises for a second and just think about some of the bigger story themes of Genesis. How does Genesis begin? You have famine and fratricide, hmm. right? So in, in the curse, uh, you know, the, the ground is cursed and man is going to eat by the sweat of his brow. And then famine is a problem for the for the promised family all through the story of Genesis. In Genesis 12, we have big famine. Yep. A- a- Abraham goes into Egypt. And then we also have the problem of of sibling rivalry and conflict epitomized in the Cain and Abel story. Yep. But it's, it's, all through, it's all through Genesis. So Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, um, even uh, 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 Abraham and Lot. You could, mm-hmm. you could, there, there's others in there as well. Uh, but, you, but, the, but the story of, of Genesis begins with fratricide. Hmm. One brother kills another. Well, how do these things come to resolution hmm. in the story of Joseph? Fratricide turns into forgiveness. Hmm. We have a repeat of the of the Cain and Abel story in Genesis 37. Wow. Uh, in, in fact, I think there's a lot of the language of Genesis 37 is very reminiscent of Genesis 4. A lot of the language of Genesis yeah. 4 recurs in Genesis 37. This is this is Cain and Abel 2.0. Hmm. 
But uh, what we see in, in Genesis 37 is we've moved from fratricide to forgiveness. Mm. Um, through the ministry and the wisdom mm-hmm. and the grace given to Joseph, God is able to restore the covenant yeah. family by bringing forgiveness to the brothers mm. instead of resulting in uh, the death of the seed. Also, famine. Famine is a major problem through through Genesis, but again, through the wisdom of Joseph and the providence of God, we see that through Joseph, God is able to overcome the famine. Hmm. So we've traveled from fratricide to forgiveness, from famine to feast. Joseph is tying together the loose ends of Genesis, and he's bringing these things to resolution. So what does that have to do with topology? Hmm. I think what we see is that because Joseph is a fulfillment character... Mm -hmm. Because he's bringing about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, because he's bringing resolution to the problem of sin, fratricide and famine, we see that the covenantal or the theological significance of his life is is one that is pointing to the ultimate deliverance from these problems, Mm. the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. Because Joseph is a fulfillment character, he's pointing to an even greater fulfillment that's to come. Wow. Give me a lot to think about there. And in fact, let me let me say, I think Moses himself, uh-huh. I think Moses himself identified Joseph as a type of the Messiah, hmm. and I think I think we see evidence evidence of that in Genesis forty nine. Okay, sure. So in, in Genesis forty nine, we have the uh, account of Jacob blessing his sons. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of evangelicals are familiar with Genesis forty nine ten. Okay, yeah. Gen- Genesis 40, 49, 8 to twelve yep. is a blessing on Judah, mm-hmm. and Genesis forty nine ten, uh, like Genesis three fifteen is a, a typical, uh, a, what, what we'd view as a typical messianic prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. This is obviously talking about, uh, you know, a dynasty that's going to come from the line of Judah, you know, the scepter bet- uh, bet- bet- between his legs, you know, euphemism for the, for the kings that he is going to father. So this is clearly talking about you know, the royal seed of Judah, hmm. not, not just David, but the ultimate royal seed of right. Judah, the, the Messiah who's going to, going to come from him. That's Genesis 49.10, but, but we have to read that in context. Mm-hmm. Let's go back two verses earlier to Genesis 49.8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sh- sons shall bow down before you. Hmm. Now listen to that language, your father's sons. Mm-hmm. Your 11 brothers Mm -hmm. are going to come bow down before you. Hmm. Now, let's think about what just happened in the Joseph story. Three times in Genesis 37, in Joseph's dreams, it says that his 11 brothers, Mm. the sons of his Mm. father, are going to come bow down before him. Then when we get to Genesis 42 and 44, we find that three times the brothers in their travels to Egypt come and bow down before him. Hmm. So it's in the dreams three times, Mm -hmm. then it actually happens three times. His 11 brothers come and bow down before him. Then we have this prophecy about this coming king of Judah, mm-hmm. and the sons of his father, his 11 brothers in this mm-hmm. context, are going to come bow down before him. So I would submit it's 1446 BC. You've just left Egypt. Uh, you know, Genesis is hot off the press. You're reading it for the first time. You get to this messianic prophecy about this son of Judah, and you think, wow, look at this Messiah who's going to come from the line of Judah. What will he be like? Hmm. And then you read Genesis 49, 8. Well, his father's sons are going to come bow down before him. This guy's going to look like Joseph. Hmm. When, when, we, we, when, when you ask the question, what will this son of Judah look like? 
he's going to look like a new Joseph. I think Moses in that passage is, if I can use this word, he's eschatologizing the Mm -hmm. Joseph story. He's basically taking the Joseph story and showing that it has an even greater significance and fulfillment that's going to come in this son of Judah, the Messiah that that Israel's waiting for. No, it's really helpful because so often when people hear the word typology, they think about strange superficial connections right, from the red in the garments in the Old Testament to, well, you have red at the cross of Christ or something like that. But what you've done there is to help us to see, if we read things in context, we understand it as Moses intends it, and yet inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's given a vision of Christ, as we know from John 5, that he is seeing something of the Messiah to come through the events that he has given to us, and he teaches us how to read his words with a prospective view towards something greater to come. I think that's exactly right, and I think... Uh, it, it, that's an important point to emphasize. Typology is not fanciful, fanciful interpretation. Typology is our effort to read the Bible the way Jesus and the apostles read the Bible. That's what we're yeah. trying to do. We are, we are being uh, consistent with our commitment to sola scriptura. Yeah. And I, I don't want to her- learn my hermeneutics uh, from you know this philosophy or that philosophy, I want to learn how to interpret the Bible from Jesus and the apostles. And I think what Jesus and the apostles yep. are doing is exactly what you're saying. Yep. They are reading scripture in its grammatical historical context. Mm-hmm. They're reading it in its literary context. Yep. They are seeing how texts develop the storyline of scripture, yep. how later texts de- relate to earlier ones and how those earlier ones are developed by later texts. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the Joseph story. That's why I think it's so important to read Joseph in the context of Genesis itself. Hmm. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. This is the continuation of the story of creation and the story of Abraham. So Hmm. we have to read Joseph in, in light of what God was doing with Adam in creation and in light of what God was doing with Abraham in the story of redemption. Amen. Brother, that's really helpful. If somebody wanted to know more, read more about Joseph and to understand how he fits in the context of the way you've described here, what, what could they read? Is there anything? So the best book mm-hmm. that I read on the Joseph story uh, was n- never published, <laughs> but it is available online. Ah. And it was a dissertation, you know, and when you say dissertation, you think it's going to be this big academic heady thing. It, okay. it, it wasn't. Okay. It's, it's totally accessible. Um, uh, it's a dissertation... Uh, published by Brian Smith, um, and, uh, you know, I forget the name. It's, it's something like the relationship between Judah and Joseph and the Joseph story. Interesting. But, but the whole dissertation is just a commentary on Joseph. Okay. On, on Genesis 37 through 50. So if you're preaching through the Joseph story, um, uh, you can you can read that dissertation and it it, it reads like a commentary on, on Genesis thirty seven through fifty. That was by far I think the best thing that's ever been written on the Joseph story. Okay. There's another book that um, the first half is a commentary on Genesis thirty seven through fifty, and I think it makes a number of good observations. Mm-hmm. That's a book called Joseph Wise and Otherwise, hmm. uh, and then Ken Matthews commentary on Genesis. Okay. I think is incredibly good. Okay. Um, and then if you want to, you can wait three years, <laughs> and my dissertation will come out okay. uh, with the New Studies in Biblical Theology series. And so that will unpack a lot of what we've been talking about. All right. We'll go ahead and put some links up online as well for some of those things, because I know we can get your dissertation yeah. pre-published and uh, pre-edited by D.A. Carson, all those right. guys up there in the New Studies in Biblical Theology. That's just a really helpful series uh, that just kind of unpacks a lot of that as well. And a lot of the stuff you shared with us today just has to do with biblical theology, and at least reading those books have been really helpful in those ways. Last question for you, Sam. Just as you've studied a lot of Joseph, what has the Lord done just to encourage your heart through all of that, and maybe just to strengthen your confidence in the gospel? Yeah, I think, uh, again, 
w- the beauty of the Joseph story is the way that it's designed so that we identify with Joseph. Hmm. Um, if 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 we follow the Lord Jesus, we will suffer. Hmm. We will encounter. Uh, uh, we will encounter suffering in this life, and uh, you know one of one of the amazing things about jo- the Joseph story is Joseph doesn't suffer because of sin or incompetence. Mm. He actually suffers precisely because he is righteous and competent. His brothers despise him because he's so good at what he does. Mm. His, uh, uh, you know, he's thrown into prison by Potiphar mm-hmm. precisely because he's righteous yeah. and refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife. So I think what the story of Joseph does is it should instill in us a great confidence in the sovereignty of God that he will work uh, in his time and in his way, and uh, that, as Joseph says, uh, you know, the very end of the book, at the very end of the book, what what his brothers meant for evil, uh, God meant for good. So even I, I think the Joseph story has something to say if even if. Um, you know, if we feel like we've been abused or harmed by other people, hmm. even those things aren't beyond yeah. the power of God to restore and to redeem. Um, and I think another thing that Joseph's story teaches us is to to be patient in suffering. Mm-hmm. Joseph goes on a 14-year journey hmm. from, hmm. you know, that fateful day where his brothers, yeah. bro- brothers rob him of his cloak to being exalted before Pharaoh. That is a long time. And so uh, I, I think... The Joseph story has been incre- incredibly encouraging to me just to see, uh, just to regularly remind myself that uh, the Lord's ways are not mine, mm-hmm. his timing is not my own, uh, uh, and that um, we have to grasp, you know, when, when it feels like, you know, there's the the sky is bronze and the Lord isn't hearing our prayers and he seems to be working in everybody else's life except mm. for mine. Uh, and that curtain to heaven seems closed, the hand of faith reaches past it and grasps hold of God's promises Amen. and trusts that God's sovereignty will fulfill his promises. Amen. Well, brother, thanks so much for uh, helping us to, uh, to read the Bible, to read the Bible better. Thanks, brother. And uh, to look at the story of Joseph, see God's faithfulness in that, and pray as we read that, that he will strengthen our faith the way that he has yours. So, Amen. Thanks for coming and joining us, brother. Thanks, brother. All right.